0: Thank you, Phil. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Serenity Improvement Group. My name is Alice. I am a recovered alcoholic. Um, <laughs> sorry, I have to laugh because um, for a couple decades, I was the person who um, was really kind and really trying to run the show. <laughs> and, and, you know, so when you say that I, I'm I'm kind, thank you. I haven't always truly been. Um, I never really know what I'm going to say, which is a good thing. And just a few minutes before the meeting started, I um, was just moved to, to come grab this. When I was trying to just not drink, I was trying so hard to just not drink. I did a lot of writing. I thought that that would help me not drink. It did a lot of therapy. And, um, and in the therapy, I, I ended up, I was inspired to write and I thought that if I, if I wrote my story, that I would overcome my drinking because I would write chapters about how I got here, you know, the childhood stuff and, um, and this is how, and I, I will never publish this. It's crap. But in my mind at the time, it was brilliant. So here's, <laughs> here's the, here's the opening of this book that I wrote years ago. Oh, and I was a big wino, really big wino. <laughs> Chardonnay is necessary. It is water. It is air. It is sustenance. It is shelter. It overrides everything else. It is more important than friends, work, health, love. It is needed, and it is necessary. I'm not sure when I adopted this line of thinking. Actually, feeling is more like it. There's not much thought involved in my constant consumption. This has progressed over many, many years. When did I last savor or sip? When did I last enjoy it? It's a blur. Chardonnay is necessary not to single out Chardonnay. Other varietals will do. Alcohol in general will do. I cannot imagine a day without it, and I haven't in some time. Sure, there are days when I will wait, but usually it's because of circumstances beyond my control. When I can, I will drink all damn day. Why? How can I do this to myself? Sacrifice my health, my job, my family and friends, my marriage? I have a stable job, friends, caring, family, a loving husband, but the compulsion to drink outweighs everything To go a day without drinking is to drive with the gas gauge on E. You might make it to your destination, but you'll feel a lot more comfortable, safer, if you just refuel. To not have alcohol is to be unprepared, unarmed. Of course, none of that is logical. It's not even how I truly feel. It's just that the alcoholic voice is loud. It is insistence. At 43, I've been drinking for a couple of decades. I'm up to three bottles per day now, sometimes more, occasionally less. I never feel fall down drunk. I don't black out. You won't find me doing shots at a bar or being obnoxious in public. I just quietly sip all day long. Never fall down drunk, but never sober. I'm writing this at the beginning of my recovery, very beginning as I have a glass by my side right now. (laughs) I am determined and I am strong, (laughs) and I will get through this. I tell myself this, and I'm trying to buy it. This will serve as a bit of a journal as I fight to become sober. This is the story of how I got here and how I will get myself back. Oh, my God. Oh, poor Alice. Like, I really, I just, I really believed that I had to fight and just be stronger, and I'm going to overcome this. You guys know that's not how it works. I proceeded to write chapter after chapter about growing up with an alcoholic father, about being raped at 13, about um these things that I wanted to blame. And I know today that none of that stuff caused my alcoholism and none of that stuff is a reason to drink, but it sure felt like it at the time. And by the way, okay, I'm a liar because (laughs) I wrote three bottles per day. I wrote sometimes more, occasionally less. It was never less. I wrote, I never feel fall down drunk. I literally fell down a few months before I wrote this, like fell down and, and injured myself, went to the hospital. Like, But I thought I was telling the truth. You can't see the delusion when you're in it. And I really thought that I needed to know why. Because it didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to um, to um jeopardize my life the way I was in the name of a beverage. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. And yet I kept doing it, powerless not to. And while I was seeing that therapist and while I was trying to just not drink and failing and failing again and again, She, the therapist asked me if I would go check myself in somewhere. And, and I agreed. I was like, yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) You know, lock me up because I was so tired of me. And, um, and I, I didn't want to come to AA because of the God stuff. You know, I, I knew a lot about Alcoholics Anonymous before I set foot in the doors. I knew that you have to pick a God, but it can be. A doorknob so that I knew that there would be some moment where they do a ceremony where everyone picks which object they want their God to be. So I, I don't know where I got that idea from, but I believed it. Um, I also knew that there was a step where you take your ex boyfriend out to lunch and they see how good you're doing now. That's step nine. I, I believe that too. Like I have no idea where I got those notions from, but, um, you know, so, but so I knew AA was, either religious or weird. And either way, I'm not interested. But when my therapist brought up the, you know, why don't you check yourself in somewhere? I started searching places and there were some places around here that were um, county supported, but I'd have to go in for 90 days. And I was like, Oh Jesus, you know, I don't know if I can do that. But then I thought about it a little bit longer and I, and, and here's what I wrote because I wrote about um, whether or not I was going to check myself in somewhere. Here's what I wrote. I wrote, "Okay, I can deal with this. I am attracted to the idea of being a puppet, of just doing what I am told, take my own desires and decisions out of the equation. I'm doing a piss poor job of taking care of myself. Let's let someone else take over. What I was talking about was some house manager or counselor, you know, giving me tasks every day and a schedule and just basically telling me what to do and not giving me access to alcohol. I was craving God when I didn't even know it. I was craving the new employer I get today. So to back up a little bit I you know I mentioned the alcoholic dad um I grew up in the Midwest uh one of the little northwest suburbs of Chicago and um my childhood wasn't bad you guys I you know I for a long time I told myself it was terrible and it really wasn't my parents did their very best but that alcoholic dad alcoholism is progressive I saw the progression, you know, when, when he was sober, he was um, brilliant, witty, really funny, really clever, um, talented, very artistic. He would paint these amazing paintings. And then when he would drink, his jokes were dumb, mean, abusive. He stopped painting. And that hurt when I saw him just stop painting. You know, for some reason, I resented that more than some of the other stuff. And. I hung in there as long as I could, and I. um, You know, when I was when I was raped at 13. I, I needed to numb out. I definitely suffered from the spiritual malady that our book talks about. Never comfortable. Never fit in my own skin. Restless, irritable discontent. And I tried everything I could to just not feel. I tried. I tried treating that spiritual malady with all kinds of things, shoplifting, eating disorder. I once took... (laughs) Okay, I was a dork. I once took a whole bottle of pills not to get high. I don't know what I was I have no idea what my goal was, other than I just want to feel different. It was a bottle of antibiotics like what what's gonna happen? you know and, but but anything to feel different even if even if the different is bad, like I just uh, I don't know how to be here right now. I hate this. I hate this. And I wasn't going to drink because I wasn't going to turn into my dad. And I drank that, I mean, my first drink was at 13. A boy gave me a bottle of peppermint schnapps and then he assaulted me. I don't want to drink. At 21, I finally fled home and um, came out to California. And... When I got out here, man, I discovered something really important, alcohol, <laughs> and it didn't make me mean. It didn't make me mean or abusive or dumb. Like I got smarter and funnier and cuter, and it was the answer. It worked better than any of the other stuff I had tried so far. better believe I needed it. And I love when the book talks about, um, though there's no way of proving it, you know, early in our drinking careers, you know, maybe we could have controlled it. Maybe I could have controlled it in those early years. We'll never know because I sure didn't try. You know, it was fun. It was fun. And it was fun with a little bit of consequences. I got a little DUI back in 94. I, you know, um had some roommates that would get mad, you know, at some of my antics, things like that. But, you know, I'm in my 20s. It's not a big deal. And then it becomes the morning drink, and then it becomes the the pregame, you know, before I go out to meet my friends, and then it becomes, I'm not going out to meet my friends. And then it becomes, I just need this to exist. It's not a party. It stopped being a party long before I came in to see you guys. And alcoholism... You know, it's not defined by our consequences. It's not defined by frequency of drinking or quantities of drinking. Nothing to do with that. It's just defined by a lack of control and a lack of choice. The lack of control is really easy to explain, and we've experienced it. If you're an alcoholic, what that feels like is once I take the first drink, something happens in me where I'm I have this insatiable craving for more alcohol. And that second drink really wants to have a third drink. And that third drink insists upon a fourth. And the fourth isn't taking no for an answer. We're going to have a fifth. I can't control that. It is the cruelest craving I know because it's a craving that can never be satiated by what I am craving. (laughs) If I'm craving chocolate, I eat chocolate. I have satisfied the craving. I'm craving alcohol. hmm. (laughs) Any amount of alcohol I have is going to make that craving worse, not better. Can't control it. And what I didn't know was that non-alcoholics, even heavy drinking non-alcoholics, don't experience that phenomenon of craving. Isn't that weird? (laughs) You know, I think that the person sitting next to me on the bar stool is having the same exact experience as I am. But nope, they're not. You know, I I shared the story this morning about, and years before I got sober, years before I really thought that I had a problem, I was out with a girlfriend and we're, you know, having a couple glasses of wine at this fancy place. And and we had nothing to do. We're just chilling. And all of a sudden she goes, oh, my gosh, I have a gift card for the salon next door. Let's go get facials. And I'm like, but my buzz will wear off. And she looked at me like, so what? Like, what, what are you talking about? For me, and I love free stuff and I love facials. I love getting pampered. I had nothing else to do that night. I wasn't even planning to get hammered. But you can't interrupt my drinking. Not even with the most pleasant activity. You can't interrupt my drinking. That is uncomfortable at best. And for a normie to interrupt their drinking, no, it, it, it doesn't... It's not uncomfortable for them. My husband, (laughs) he can have a couple drinks and switch to water on purpose (laughs) and then let that buzz wear off and go to do another activity, cook dinner, clean the kitchen afterwards. What? (laughs) If I pick up the first drink, that's my day. (laughs) You know, I would also have friends who would want to go to Sunday brunch. What does that mean? Mimosas, right? They would want to go to Sunday brunch and then to the movies, and this was when none of the theaters around here would serve alcohol. And um, it's like, what? I'm going to have a couple mimosas and then go sit in a theater and sip on a Diet Coke for an hour and a half? That just, that doesn't make any sense to me. To a non-alcoholic, it does. So that phenomenon of craving, that allergy, that physical part of alcoholism, If that is all I had, after a few hangovers, after a few bad consequences, I would figure it out. I would connect those dots and just not pick up the first drink. It wouldn't be worth it. Alcohol would simply be something I'm allergic to. But alcoholism centers in the mind. And it centers in the mind in a way that we each can experience a little bit differently. It's the, it's the insane thought that precedes the first drink. The insane thought that stone cold sober. I don't have any alcohol in my system yet. I can't blame it on the body's allergic response. I know that I have all the head knowledge that one drink means a couple bottles and I'm going to make a fool out of myself or throw up or feel suicidal or lose my job or risk the lives of people on on Highway 50 here in Sacramento where I did a lot of drunk driving. I know all of that. It's not worth it. I don't want to drink anymore, but one drink's fine. (laughs) And that's how it happens. The insane thought can be, one, I, I can handle it or screw it, I don't care. Or no thought at all. I wrote about that. Why do I do this? There's not much thought involved. I was describing alcoholism. I was living it. And the question of why any of us are alcoholics, we don't get to answer that. A good friend of mine, he uses the analogy, let's say I find out that my eyesight is failing. Do I really need to know Is it whether I didn't eat enough carrots as a kid or I sat too close to the TV or do I just need to go get some freaking glasses (laughs) like that? And because this mind of mine, when I still have the alcoholic mind, has that twist that no matter how much I want to stay sober, no matter how much knowledge I have about my condition, I will still pick up the first drink whether I want to or not. That's the scary part of alcoholism. It's not the one is too many and a thousand isn't enough. The scary part is that I will pick up regardless of how much I need and want to stay sober. You know, I, I love that you read the traditions at the beginning of the meeting. And um, that third tradition, Kevin knows what I'm going to say. That third tradition, man, you know, if, if all I do is qualify for membership, I'll probably die of alcoholism because no matter how great the necessity or the wish, I cannot leave that bottle alone, not with my own mind. So I have a body that can't control my drinking and a mind that cannot control my abstinence. So that therapist of mine, she, um, she ended up finding a little five day detox that, um, that's not too far from me. And, um, I didn't have insurance at the time. So, you know, going to one of the fancy places was not in the cards as much as I wanted that. I wanted to go to like one of the fancy places around here where I could get, you know, massage and facials and whatever. Like, that sounds good. Um, anyway, the, um, she found this place and I went down there and they said they would have a bed ready on October 14th. And this was at the beginning of September in 2013. And so I said, okay, put my name down. And, um, and I spent that next six weeks drinking the way I thought I wanted to drink. I stopped going to therapy. I stopped writing. I stopped going to the gym. I barely popped mints in my mouth. I drank while driving. Like, a wonder I didn't get pulled over I drank with wild abandon most miserable six weeks of my life I was terrified of that date coming up and on that date October 14th I was packing my suitcase and getting ready to go and my husband walked in on me drinking out of a bottle and he looked disgusted rightfully so And he asked me the most impossible question. He said, is that going to be your last drink? In that moment, I knew I couldn't answer that. I knew whether or not it was my last drink was not up to me. Powerlessness. That question hit me like a ton of bricks. So when we get down to the detox, I knew, I knew a thousand percent That I can't control it, and I don't enjoy it, and I'm going to keep doing it anyway. And I don't know what this five days in detox is going to do, but I just need a break from me. I need a break from Alice. I didn't know it at the time, but self was my problem. I could feel it, but I didn't know it. And I get down to that detox, and I... They take me back to my room and there's a cat sitting on the bed. And some of you know, I'm kind of a crazy cat lady. And I thought that cat was there for me. I fell to my knees. I start crying. It just felt for the first time in my life, like I'm supposed to be here now. Right here, is. And so when um they brought us over to the AA meeting next door, which I hadn't really known was going to be part of the deal. I thought I was just checking into a detox. I didn't know. (laughs) And um, I walk in and you guys talked about God and I heard the term in a whole new way. It wasn't a threat. You guys didn't preach. You guys talked about the steps and you talked about this book. And you guys were laughing and making fun of each other and dropping F-bombs and including me. And so when a woman came up to me that day, I'm still shaking. And she says, would you like me to be your sponsor? I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. I don't know what that means, but yes, please. you know what yes, whatever, whatever whatever you're offering, yes, because what you're offering is not something I have. <laughs> and that next day, October fifteenth, two thousand and thirteen, remains my sobriety date, and I know that's not me. I know sobriety is not in my hands. The sobriety is a gift. It's a gift. And I got into the steps with that sponsor, and I didn't understand any of it. And I, um, I just followed directions. I remember very little of anything that she told me in those early days. I remember very little of anything that was said in those meetings. I just remember the feeling is I need to be with these people and do these things. And so it didn't make any sense when um I'm reading this book that's telling me I'm selfish. And it doesn't make any sense when I have to draw columns on a piece of paper. And it doesn't make any sense when I find out that I'm the problem. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense, and yet it does, because I'm starting to feel this inner peace. And I'm starting to pray. And I'm starting to feel... Things shift in me. The way I react to things has shifted. And it's not me deciding to be different. It's not me deciding to act differently. It's something working inside me that I can't name or explain or understand, but it's real. I believe in God today because I experienced him. And I still do. I want to share, um, I don't always go over this in detail, but it was a huge, it was a transformative moment in my recovery. Um, I mentioned that I had been raped at 13 and, um, there were several adults that I resented in that time period of my life, but one of them was a doctor who treated me afterwards. And, um, and this doctor just simply had a terrible bedside manner and she didn't believe me. She asked me if I was sexually active and I said, no, which was the truth. And she didn't believe me. And I couldn't have said the word rape at 13. I didn't know. I didn't know what had happened to me. And she badgered me. And, um, finally I said, okay, fine. I'm sexually active. And, um, And she said, I won't tell your parents. And then the next day, my mom came home from work and said, well, I spoke to the doctor and we're going to put you on the pill because you're a pretty girl and boys are going to want to do things to you. I thought that doesn't sound right. You know. But. In years and those early teen years, I was very quiet and very, very inwardly destructive. I carried a resentment against that doctor. About three decades. And when I first did my fourth step, oh, she was number one on that resentment inventory. I'll tell you about another resentment that I had. Um, when I was about two weeks sober, I got to my home group a little bit early, and I was making myself some coffee, and this old-timer comes up to me, and he goes, you know, if you put the creamer in your cup first and then pour the coffee, you don't have to stir it so much. I was like, how dare you? <laughs> and after that, for months, anytime he was called on to share in a meeting, I'd be like, oh, here comes the genius. You know, really just unreasonably mad at him. By the time I got to my four step and I was, you know, and his name shows up right underneath the doctor's. Does that make any sense? No. I know my resentment against him is petty. I know that, but still there. Which one blocks me from the soul of the Whatever resentments I'm holding on to, fancied or real. But when I got to the fourth column for that doctor and I'm supposed to look at my mistakes, and I just wrote F her <laughs> in the more That's it. That's all I wrote. And my sponsor was like, no. Um, <laughs> she guided me at that point. I can't gloss over. Those paragraphs at the bottom of 66 and top of 67. Realize that this person is perhaps spiritually sick. Like me. So my sponsor said, you mentioned that doctor had an accent. Is it possible she grew up in a different culture? Yes. Okay. And you mentioned That this happened when you were thirteen. This was 1983. Was our culture different then? Yes. And she kept asking me a series of "what if" questions. And at the at the end, she said, "Is it possible, given the doctor's upbringing, culture, training, the situation of that day, how the how the world you know viewed the situations like mine?" Is it possible she did her very best on that day? I said, Yes. Thirty years of resentment lifted from my shoulders. And then she said, Okay, now let's look at your mistakes as an adult. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but I got to see I got to see how I had used my celebrity. How I'd used it to feel a little more of a victim. You know, my story has a twist. Look what else happened to me. It justifies a few drinks, right? It justifies me not getting close to you, not letting you get to know me. Feeling like my story is different. It's not. And I got to see where I've made mistakes. And I got to see where I have been selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, frightened all my life. And then I get to go out and make amends for the way in which I've hurt people. See, for the first time in my life through this process, I get to see what kind of daughter I've been, what kind of friend, what kind of wife, what kind of employee. Before taking these steps, if you'd ask me, how's my day? It would always be like, well, she said this and he said that or this happened. Like it was always about what other people were doing, you know? Today, my inner peace isn't dependent upon how other people in my life behave. It's just not. So as I have my, um, my eight step list and I go out to make amends, And, you know, my dad's on that list. So I finally got to see what kind of daughter I've been. My whole life, he had been the villain in my story. He's not a villain. He's a human being. You know, and I and I resented him for being an alcoholic. (laughs) That's rich. (laughs) And. I didn't think I would be able to do it face-to-face. You know, my parents, they live in Wisconsin now, and um, I didn't have any more vacation time coming or money. And my sponsor said, let's just set that one aside for now. And sure enough, within a couple of days, my aunt in Arizona gave me a call, and she said she invited me out for my cousin's wedding. She's flying me out. And by the way, she's flying out my parents, too. So within three or four days, I'm face-to-face with them. And, oh, i got to have that willingness now because <laughs> here's my chance to make amends, pulled my dad aside, and I said, you know, I'm just, I don't know what I said, <laughs> to be honest. I remember stumbling over my words, and and Dad said, are you trying to apologize to me for something? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you don't have to apologize to me for anything. And I'm like, no, Dad, I, I, I kind of do. And he goes, oh, you're on your night steps. <laughs> See, Dad knows all about this. A couple days ago, he celebrated 25 years with you guys. I fled home at 21, but I, I wasn't estranged from the family. I'd go back to visit, usually once a year. My parents would come out here. I saw the transformation. I had evidence right in front of me. That Alcoholics Anonymous works. Worked for my dad. I had hated him for his drinking. But I couldn't see his sobriety. Not until I needed you guys. Not until I desperately needed you. And not until I was ready to look at what kind of daughter have I been. And all the things that I resented about him. He wasn't a good father. I had done the very same thing. Haven't been a very good daughter. And even though I, you know, I address this. In steps four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I make amends. There was another experience that came later. That just. Another shift this was a few years after I made amends to him and I'm back out for another visit. And we go to an AA meeting together, some little meeting in Wisconsin. And, um, and it was a meeting dad had never been to before. And, um, so he's meeting these people for the first time. And, and one guy, my dad and this guy just hit it off right away. Right. I mean, before the meeting they're they just, they're chatting and, they just couldn't get enough of each other they're just chatting away and um and after the meeting ended sure you know same thing they're standing there just talking 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 and my sister who's a normie was supposed to pick us up so i texted her and i said hey hang back dad's making a friend and in that moment i realized i had boxed him in to just father and a failed one at that that's all he ever was but isn't he so many other things? Couldn't see what I couldn't see. And as important and um, imperative as those steps are, I believe you know it's um it's Bill C who always says that steps ten, eleven, twelve are like ninety percent of the program. Because that's where I get to live today. I get to live in these simple directions. I have that direction and guidance that I've been craving for so long. What did I write? I'm doing a poor job of taking care of myself. Let's let someone else take over take my own desires and decisions out of the equation. I get to do that today. I get to do that today with that third step decision coming to fruition as I practice 10 and 11. And then in practicing 12, I get this deeper understanding of God, of my purpose A few years ago, more than a few years ago, I think it was around 2017, I joined a, um, a recovery Facebook group. And I know some of you guys from some of those groups, like, um, man, Facebook is like the Wild West fan. There's all kinds of stuff going on, but, um, but I was in this group and, um, a couple of the guys in there started, um, started meeting, started doing this meeting once a week on this platform called Zoom. It's 2017, mind you. Okay. And, um, and they would do it every Friday night and they did it because they wanted to meet each other and they live, you know, different parts of the world. And also, um, one of a couple of them were housebound, one, you know, caretaker for a family member. Another one has a, um, chronic illness, you know, and, and they would post about it every week. And I would always comment like, Oh, that sounds like fun. I'll be there. And I'd be like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go. That's weird. You know, every, every week this is going on, right? And, and they would even talk about getting, um, getting to meet newcomers once in a while and like, um, getting to sponsor people who lived in different parts of the country. And I'm like, okay, that's half measures, clearly, right? Like, no way, not doing that. And then the pandemic hits. <laughs> and, um, I realized that I need you. I need this. And that meeting was the first Zoom meeting I ever went to. And as soon as I logged on, they just started laughing. They're like, you need us now, don't you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then I start going to other groups and I start meeting people and I start meeting people who um, are new and I offer to meet with them like this and we crack open the book and we're in the same room. I'm so glad that I was wrong about online sponsorship. Every time I'm wrong, my world just gets bigger. It keeps getting bigger. And as I take people through the steps, I I am less interested In myself. My little plans and designs. It is transcended by the happiness. That I find in giving myself to others. But when. When we all have ups and downs. And when I'm feeling. Low. Or. um Off the beam. Uncomfortable. I want to be comforted. That seems reasonable, right? (laughs) When I am uncomfortable, I want my blanket, bowl of macaroni and cheese. And a rerun of Law and Order SVU. (laughs) It's very specific, but that is what I want. And that's comfortable for about 15 minutes. (laughs) When I am uncomfortable, if I seek to help somebody, it always works. I get once again rocketed into this fourth dimension of existence that I hope never ceases to amaze me. Because it's just the coolest. The solution has never been about my comfort. It's about my purpose. And thank God I have a purpose today. Thank God I get to help others. I used to go around hurting people and not even know it. And I still don't know what I don't know. Um, I shared this story last night that just popped back in my head. Oh, yes. Here comes my cat. Um, <laughs> my husband and I have been together since 99. He is. Um, he's incredibly generous, kind, considerate. And. Every time he does the grocery shopping. He puts the groceries away, but he leaves the receipt on the counter. I don't know why it's weird you know and um i don't say anything i just quietly resent him for you know about 20 years (laughs) but he does this you know i'm just every time every time like what are you do you want me to see what you bought or how much you spent like i don't i don't understand i don't understand it's so weird you know and then finally i was like okay i'm i'm i am not going to be the one to throw it away like i'm gonna let it sit there let's just see how long it sits there like days go by, you know, and the rest of the place is like somewhat neat, like, you know, so it's like it's noticeable that receipt is just sitting there mocking me. And, um, and finally we're in the kitchen and he picks it up and he goes, Oh, are you done with the coupons on the back? It turns out that once after we first met, I was saving some of the coupons off the back and he didn't forget. Yes, kitty. I haven't fed them yet. Um, I don't know what I don't know. Thank God I get to be open to these lessons today because, um, Sometimes God makes it obvious and sometimes not. (laughs) But that God is always available. That God I I didn't want, that God that I rejected. I didn't even, I didn't believe in God before coming in here. I didn't want to do the God stuff and I just, I just felt it. (laughs) I couldn't deny it. I remember Refusing to go to church as a kid. I just thought it was all nonsense. I wasn't mad at God. I just didn't think he existed. And um a couple years ago, it might have been even been the same visit when dad and I went to that meeting where he made that new friend. But I was back visiting and um, my parents and my mom pulls out this folder with a bunch of drawings and poems that I did as a kid. And I look through these poems. Eight years old. What were my poems about? God. (laughs) I don't even remember doing it. And it's, it's my handwriting and it's, you know, Alice, age eight. I'm like, what? Deep down in every man, woman, and child, it was there. I don't remember, but it was there. Today, I, um, I just have irrefutable evidence that not only is God real, but he's real in my life. He's real in my soul. I get to, um, experience him. I get to experience his guidance. I am often blocked in one way or another, but whenever I'm willing to face what's blocking me, I feel his presence. And that's the only reason I'm sober today. There's not a single page in this book that tells me to just not drink. There's not a single step that tells us to stop drinking. Because it's impossible. It's impossible for the real alcoholic. It just asks, you know, if we want to stop. If we can diagnose ourselves as alcoholic. If we can recognize that we cannot drink safely. Take these steps. Find out. If you honestly take these steps at one point. You'll stop reaching for that drink. The problem will be removed. And then you get to live in a whole new world. It's pretty darn cool. I feel like that is more than enough out of me. But thank you again for this opportunity. I did put my um, phone number in my profile for good reason. Anyone is welcome to contact me. And um, I hope I said something useful. I freaking love Alcoholics Anonymous. It saved my life, and I have a feeling it will continue to do so. Thanks for letting me share.